Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. We've all heard the story of how on February 9th, 1964, the Beatles performed live on The Ed Sullivan Show in front of 73 million television viewers, the largest audience ever up to that point for an entertainment broadcast. But perhaps you didn't know that a mere six weeks earlier, on Christmas Day 1963, the Beatles were virtually unknown in the United States. How does a band go from total obscurity to the largest TV audience ever in a month and a half? Well, a lot of things had to go right. And also, a lot of things that had gone wrong needed to go on to pay unexpected dividends. Welcome to Speed of Sound, the show that breaks down the stories behind the pop songs and sounds that top the charts and shape the soundtrack of generations. I'm Steve Greenberg, and I'll be exploring the question of how Beatlemania conquered the USA so quickly on this episode of Speed of Sound. To understand how Beatlemania conquered America so quickly... It's really important to take a look at British Beatlemania, which was in full bloom by late summer 1963. Britain's obsession with the Beatles built over the course of nearly a year, during which the band released a series of singles, each one bigger than the one before. Love me do. There was Love Me Do, which only got to number 17 on the chart. But that was followed by Please Please Me. Which was much, much bigger. It got to number two or number one, depending on which chart you looked at. And then From Me to You, which was a monster spending seven weeks at number one. 
Now, the Beatles were touring pretty relentlessly at this point, and by late spring, there were tales of mass hysteria at Beatles concerts, which started to spread from the north of England. Teenage girls were fainting at shows. The screaming was so loud you couldn't hear the music. Every time a Beatle was sighted, it became a frenzied chase scene. And it all spread through the UK, town by town. Then, in late August, the Beatles released She Loves You, which pretty quickly became the biggest-selling single ever by a UK act. She loves you, yeah. At that point, the British press started writing about the Beatles' frenzy, and by doing so, they, of course, whipped it up further. Previously, the British press didn't care very much about pop music. In fact, it took John Lennon's involvement in a fistfight at Paul McCartney's birthday party in June of 63 for the band to even get its first press headline, Beatle in Brawl, Sorry I Socked You, which ran on the back page of the Daily Mirror. But by late summer of 63, the press were extremely eager for the story of these four young outsiders from the hinterlands who somehow had the power to arouse young British womanhood to heights of hysteria. Now, as it happened, in the summer of 1963, the UK press were becoming quite fascinated by the kind of sexually charged topics that previously had been considered taboo. And this was due to what became known as the Profumo sex scandal, which at that very moment was bringing down the British government due to tales of outrageous sexual escapades involving Britain's upper crust. It quickly became obvious that stories about sex sold newspapers. And so, to feed that hunger, the papers started running stories about the Beatles craze, a phenomenon viewed in purely sexual terms with absolutely no regard for the music. There were all these pseudo-psychological analyses of the anatomy of Beatlemania, all of which had to do with sex. It was summed up by this one young girl who was asked by the BBC why she screamed at the mere mention of the Beatles and confessed, It's not something I can say on the radio. When the Beatles came to London on October 13th, things went into overdrive. They were there to appear on the biggest TV variety show in the country, Val Parnell's Sunday Night at the London Palladium. And thousands of screaming fans descended on the venue. They clogged entire streets, and they actually engaged in clashes with the London police. And it was on that same day that the Daily Mirror newspaper coined the term Beatlemania to describe what was going on. In case you're curious, Beatlemania was a play on Listomania, which was this 1840s frenzy which accompanied the concerts of pianist Franz Liszt. And while all this was going on in England, America was oblivious. All through 1963, Capitol Records, who had the right of first refusal to Beatles music for the U.S., showed absolutely no interest in the band. Now, this was mainly due to the tastes of a man named Dave Dexter, who was in charge of Capitol Records International A&R, meaning he was the guy who decided which international projects got picked up in the U.S. Dave Dexter was actually pretty good at his job. That year, he picked up a Japanese record called Sukiyaki by Q Sakamoto, and it became a number one record in the U.S. Also, he signed some great jazz artists like Peggy Lee and Nat King Cole, 
But Dave Dexter just plain didn't like rock and roll. And so he turned down the first two Beatles records offered by EMI, which owned Capitol and who had the worldwide rights to the band. Thus, Please Please Me and From Me to You, both big British number one records, instead got licensed to this Chicago indie label called VJ Records. VJ could have been a good home for the Beatles, actually. They had Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, who were having some very, very big hits around that time. But unfortunately, in 1963, the label was running out of money. Seems VJ's president, Ewart Abner, was using the company's funds to cover his Las Vegas gambling losses. That didn't leave the label much money to spend on radio promotion. So when VJ released Please Please Me in February... The only station they could get the song on was a local top 40 station in Chicago, WLS, where a DJ named Dick Biondi was Ewart Abner's close friend. You know, we're here every night at 9 o'clock. I have to remind you that Nut is here again. Hello there. This is the world's ugliest disc jockey, Dick Biondi. Dick Biondi played Please Please Me a lot, and the song managed to make it to number 35 on the WLS chart, but that was it. And by the time VJ released the next Beatles single, From Me to You, in May... Dick Biondi had been fired by WLS. But luckily, the next month he landed at KRLA in Los Angeles, where he continued to be supportive of the Beatles. Even though no one else in the entire country was playing the record, he actually convinced KRLA to give it a try. The airplay on KRLA was enough to get the song all the way up to number 116 on the Billboard bubbling underchart. And that's where it stalled. Now you might ask, why didn't For Me To You do better? It was being played in Los Angeles, the second biggest radio market in the whole country. Well, it might have had a little something to do with this. That's Del Shannon's version of For Me To You. Del Shannon was a top American rock and roller in the early 60s. He had a big hit called Runaway, which got all the way to number one. Early in the spring of 63, Del Shannon performed on a show in London with the Beatles, and he heard them play From Me to You. He recorded it when he got back to the States, almost as a favor to the Beatles. He was hoping to give them some exposure in America. And in June, the song got up to number 77 on the Billboard chart, thus marking the first appearance of a Lennon-McCartney song on the Hot 100. Now, maybe if Dick Biondi had arrived at KRLA a month earlier, the Beatles version of the song would have gotten some traction before the Del Shannon record even came out. But as it stood, Del Shannon's release probably eliminated that chance. Meanwhile, VJ Records' financial problems were starting to catch up with them. EMI accused VJ of not paying royalties on the two Beatles singles that they'd put out and revoked VJ's options for any future singles. This turns out to have been a really stupid mistake on VJ's part, since the records were flops and total royalties owed to the Beatles at that point were less than $1,000. So with the VJ deal canceled, EMI once again approached our friend Dave Dexter at Capitol Records, this time with She Loves You. And incredibly, in spite of the amazing success the song was having in England, Dave Dexter turned the band down yet again. In a memo, he described the Beatles' U.S. prospects to be, quote, dead in the water. And so She Loves You was licensed to Swan Records of Philadelphia, a label even tinier than VJ. 
and they released it on September 16th. Swan had even less success with the Beatles than VJ did. A disc jockey named Murray the K at radio station WINS in New York gave She Loves You a real shot on September 28th when he played it in a five-way battle of the hits, where it came in third. Murray kept playing it every night for a week solid, but he got absolutely no reaction. Swan Records then convinced the TV show American Bandstand, which was also based in Philadelphia, to play She Loves You in its Raider Records segment. And the results were horrifying. The song got a score of 73 out of 100. And what's much worse, the kids on Bandstand laughed when Dick Clark held up a photo of the Beatles with their long hair. Years later, recalling that incident, Dick Clark remembers thinking to himself, I figured these guys were going nowhere. The complete lack of success in the U.S. allowed George Harrison the opportunity to come over and visit his sister Louise, who lived in Benton, Illinois. While he was in Illinois, Louise took George over to a radio station in West Frankfurt, where they played a copy of She Loves You that George had brought over with him to the States. And then the station owner's 17-year-old daughter interviewed George Harrison on the air. But still, no listener response. Incidentally, while he was in Illinois, George Harrison actually jammed on stage at a VFW dance with this local band called the Four Vests, who played 50s rock songs. And he could just do that in complete anonymity. Meanwhile, back in England, the fan frenzy and the press hysteria kept building and building. And at this point, the American press finally began to take notice of what was going on in England, starting with the Washington Post. On October 29th, the Post published the very first U.S. press story on the Beatles, written by their London correspondent, Flora Lewis. It was entitled, Thousands of Britain's Riot. And it focused on the fact that riot squads had to be brought in to calm the crowds in four different British cities where the Beatles had played recently. Like the journalists in the British press, Flora Lewis was completely dismissive of the Beatles' music. She described them as... Four wide-eyed, wacky boys in their early 20s. And she compared them to, quote... Limp, upside-down, dust mops. In late October, the Beatles toured Sweden. And when they returned home to England on October 31st, they were met at a very rainy London airport by more than a thousand screaming fans, thrilled to have their idols back. How long do you think Beatlemania will last... As long as you all keep coming. (laughs) Now, as fate would have it, Ed Sullivan, who was the host of the biggest weekly TV variety show on American television, was also at London Airport that day, and he couldn't help but notice the commotion. Ed Sullivan's looking at these crowds, and he's assuming that all the ruckus must be for a member of the British royal family. When someone tells him it's for the Beatles, he asks, who the hell are the Beatles? But he makes a mental note to maybe consider booking these Beatles someday, perhaps as a novelty act. Then something happened that completely changed the way people looked at the Beatles in England. The band suddenly morphed from being looked at as merely objects of teenage girls' sexual obsessions to being embraced as those lovable mop tops, the pride of the British Empire even. This instant transformation happened due to their appearance at the Royal Variety Show on November 4th. This was a big annual charity event where the acts appeared at the invitation of Queen Elizabeth, although the queen actually stayed home that evening because she was pregnant with Prince Edward. 
But the Queen Mother, who was in fact the most beloved of the royals, was in attendance. And she could be seen clapping along as the Beatles performed, while Princess Margaret was snapping her fingers. Now, famously, John Lennon introduced the band's finale that evening, which was Twist and Shout, with a cheeky quip. For our last number, I'd like to ask your help. Would the people in the cheaper seats clap your hands? And the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewelry. That was a display of cheekiness that one simply did not exhibit before the royal family. And yet, when John Lennon did it, it worked. He managed to somehow narrow the distance between the monarchy and his little working-class quartet that was on stage. In England at that time, ideas of knowing one's proper place in society were evolving pretty rapidly. Even the Queen Mother became a fan that night, calling the Beatles so young, fresh, and vital. And from then on, the Beatles were treated as pretty much national heroes. But the path to stardom in the U.S. would prove pretty bumpy for the Fab Four. Up next, Capitol Records makes a colossal mistake, and the Beatles take on America. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. (laughs) 
Back in the USA, despite everything that was going on in England, Capitol Records at the beginning of November again turned down the latest Beatles single, a little number called I Want to Hold Your Hand, which, by the way, had advance orders of over a million singles in England. The Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, was fed up. The day after the Royal Command performance, he got on a plane in New York to try and fix the situation. First, he met with Ed Sullivan, who was finally ready to book the band after he'd heard those reports about how they wowed the royal family. Ed Sullivan made a deal with Epstein that the Beatles would appear on not one, not two, but three consecutive episodes of The Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th, 16th, and 23rd, 1964. That's similar to what he'd done with Elvis Presley back in 1956. He agreed to pay them a grand total of $10,000 for the three episodes, which was a lot less than what stars usually got for being on the show. But Brian Epstein didn't care about the money. He knew that booking the Ed Sullivan show would be a game changer. And it was. Epstein's next stop was to Capitol Records' New York office, where a man named Brown Meggs, who was the East Coast head of Capitol Records, immediately gave him a release commitment. Epstein thought to himself, that was really easy. I should have come over here in person months ago. But what he didn't realize was that the decision had already been made. A couple of weeks earlier, the managing director of EMI, L.G. Wood, flew to the USA furious that Dave Dexter was refusing to license the Beatles. He pretty much ordered Dexter's boss, Capitol Records president Alan Livingston, to put out the next Beatles record in America. Livingston grudgingly agreed to press up 5,000 copies of the next single and to release it in January. It was only later on, after word came in that Epstein had the deal with Ed Sullivan, that Capitol finally got on board in a big way and agreed to a $40,000 marketing budget, which is about $300,000 in today's dollars. That was a massive amount for a new act. Now, amazingly, Dave Dexter kept his job as head of international A&R at Capitol Records in spite of having turned down the Beatles four times. And by the way, he also turned down a bunch of other gigantic British invasion acts, Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Hollies, the Animals, the Dave Clark Five, Herman's Hermits, the Yardbirds. And not only did he keep his job, but he remained in charge of a and the Beatles records for the American market. And so he was the guy responsible for the reconfiguration of all the Beatles' UK albums on Capitol in the U.S. While all this was happening, the American media started to become really fascinated by British Beatlemania. Within the course of a week in the middle of November, the band was featured in Time magazine, Life magazine, and Newsweek. All the articles focused mainly on the fan frenzy and gave a lot of attention to the appearance before the royal family, which, to the American press, added a certain air of legitimacy to the whole thing. Then, on November 18th, NBC ran the first TV news item on British Beatlemania. It was a four-minute-long story on the Huntley-Brinkley Evening News, which was watched by about 12 million people. The piece was mainly about the fans' hysterical reaction to the band, and it showed a clip of the Beatles performing From Me To You in concert, nearly completely drowned out by all the screaming fans. One reason for the Beatles' popularity may be that it's almost impossible to hear them. Four days later, on November 22nd, the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite was set to run its own four-minute-long piece on Beatlemania. But the CBS piece didn't air that evening. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern 
standard time, some 38 minutes ago. The assassination of JFK sent American society into a deep depression, especially the country's youth who really looked up to JFK as a hero. Young Americans were in shock, which gave way to sadness and disillusionment. Even Top 40 Radio didn't provide an escape from the somber mood that America found itself in. By some strange coincidence, the number one song in the country for the rest of that year after the assassination of America's first Catholic president was this folk song about the founder of a Roman Catholic religious order, sung in French. The truth is, no song could have captured the nation's mood at that moment better than Dominique by the singing nun. Chez Dominique et ses frères, le pain s'en vint à manquer, et deux anges se présentèrent portant de grands pains dorés. Dominique et Nicolique s'en allaient tout simplement, routiers, pauvres chantants. In the weeks after JFK's death, Walter Cronkite, the anchorman of the CBS Evening News, began to feel really weighed down by the absence of joy with one heavy item after another on his program. He told his staff, let's air something fun to break things up. But really, there was nothing fun to report on. Then, somebody remembered that story that they were supposed to air on the day of the assassination, the one about those crazy kids in England and how they were going bonkers over this bunch of long-haired rock and rollers. And so, on December 10th, the CBS Evening News ran that four-minute piece on the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the Beatles, those are. And this is Beatleland, formerly known as Britain, where an epidemic called Beatlemania has seized the teenage population, especially female. The CBS piece was just another one of those reports about screaming teens and the royal variety show with a lot of eye-rolling on the part of the correspondent who made it clear that he was really bewildered and kind of annoyed by the whole Beatle thing. But the piece also contained two things that weren't in the NBC report. First, there was an interview with the Beatles themselves. Do you have any fears that your public eventually will get tired of you and move on to a new favorite? It's stupid to worry about things like that, because, I mean, it could, it's not worth could missing your sleep for, is it? No, but no. It, it could, it could happen tomorrow, and it could, you know, we could have quite a run. This is really We just a, hope we are going to have quite a run. And then there was a live performance of She Loves You, from a concert in Bournemouth. Walter Cronkite's news show pulled in about 10 million viewers a night. Mostly families gathered around what was usually the only TV in the house. And one person watching that evening was a 15-year-old girl named Marcia Albert, who lived in Silver Spring, Maryland. When she heard She Loves You, she found it to be a very welcome breath of fresh air. Marcia Albert thought that She Loves You was such a great song that she sat down and wrote a letter to her local DJ, Carol James from WWDC in Washington, D.C. She wrote, Why can't we have music like that here in America? Just wanting to make a young kid happy in a very dark time, Carol James called a friend who worked at BOAC, the airline that was the precursor to British Air, and his friend arranged for a stewardess to bring over a copy of the Beatles' latest single from England two days later. As it turned out, that single was not She Loves You, but in fact it was I Want to Hold Your Hand. As a special treat, Carol James invited Marcia Albert to come down to the studio on December 17th and introduce the song herself on the air. So Marcia Albert of Dublin Drive of Silver Spring has the honor of introducing something brand new and exclusive here at WWDC. Marcia, the microphone here on the Carol James Show is yours. 
Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time on the air in the United States, here are the Beatles singing, I Want to Hold Your Hand. That piece of audio is so astonishing. It's this 15-year-old girl basically coming on the air and announcing to everybody that the world is about to change. And by the time the song was finished, the station's switchboard was all lit up with calls from listeners who wanted to hear it again. WWDC immediately put the song into heavy rotation. And by the next day, record stores all over the D.C. area were swamped with requests for this record that they'd never heard of and which wasn't even available. Carol James started sending reel-to-reel tapes of the record to a couple of his friends who DJed on stations in Chicago and St. Louis. And when they put it on the air, the song got the same crazy reaction. Now, why was it that the Beatles connected so immediately when Carol James gave them one spin on December 17th? They'd gotten on the radio before in the United States and nothing. You might be tempted to suggest that I Want to Hold Your Hand was just a better record than the previous Beatle releases. But then again, it was She Loves You that got Marsha Albert all worked up in the first place. I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that if it was She Loves You that was played on WWDC on December 17th, the reaction would have been exactly the same. In fact, within a few weeks, She Loves You would turn out to be as big a sensation in America as I Want to Hold Your Hand. So exactly what had changed? Journalist Lester Bangs famously wrote of that moment in time, We needed a fling after the wake. Turns out the Beatles provided the perfect remedy for those extremely dark days after John Kennedy's death. The assassination caused this deep wound to the national psyche, and young people were just anxious for something new to help them get over it. And looking back, it's not surprising that it would have to come from outside the U.S., because over here it didn't seem like there was any joy to be found. And remember, by the time of that first spin on WWDC, Kids in America had read a lot about the Beatles and the effect they were having on teens in England, even if they hadn't heard the music. All that media coverage of British Beatlemania kind of primed the public for the hysteria here. There was a cartoon that accompanied a New York Times magazine piece on British Beatlemania where this girl is playing a Beatles record on her phonograph while explaining to her completely bewildered father But naturally, they make you want to scream, Daddy-o. That's the whole idea of the Beatles sound. When teenage girls hear the Beatles, they scream. Fans in America had been learning how to react to the Beatles before they'd ever even heard the music. And then, when it turned out that the music was terrific, the choice between American depression and British Beatlemania became a no-brainer. The only problem was that Capitol Records weren't quite ready just yet. They'd scheduled I Want to Hold Your Hand for release on January 13th, 1964. And the early airplay given by Carol James and his friends with no records in the stores was actually seen by Capitol to be harmful to the project. Radio airplay without records in stores is kind of like uncapped gushers spewing wasted oil. And so what did Capitol Records do? They called in their lawyers who sent a cease and desist letter to WWDC, demanding that they pull the record off the air. The station responded with an emphatic, no, this was the hottest record in ages. In fact, Carol James started circulating tapes of the song to more and more DJs all over the country, and every station got the same insane reaction. Finally, Capitol stopped fighting. They realized they were sitting on a monster, and they snapped to attention. Capital moved the release up to the earliest possible date, December 26th. 
Moving up the release date for I Want to Hold Your Hand was actually the one and only important proactive decision made by Capitol Records in the entire campaign. And that never would have happened without 15-year-old Marsha Albert. By the way, when the Beatles played the Washington Coliseum a couple of months later, Marsha Albert got to meet the band. And the Beatles showed their appreciation by saying, thank you, Marsha, on the air on WWDC. Pretty cool. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like you to meet the young lady right after we're finished talking here. Marsha Albert is... Come on in here very quickly, Marsha, and then we have to... Good old Marsha. Come here. Because I know the... Marsha Albert. This is George Harrison. Hello, Paul. There is... Marsha Bog. Now, you know everybody. Capital put into motion a really aggressive marketing plan although some of their tactics feel, shall we say, quaint by today's standards. They printed up millions of stickers reading, the Beatles are coming, below a picture of four Beatle hairdos. And then they sent a memo to their staff instructing them, we literally want your salesmen to be plastering these stickers on any friendly surface as they walk down the street. Make arrangements with some local high school students to spread the stickers around town. Involve your friends and relatives. But the truth is, the marketing plan was hardly needed. Capital never even made it through the entire $40,000 marketing budget. From the moment I Want to Hold Your Hand was released on December 26th, it sold itself. That morning, Capital's promo men hand-delivered I Want to Hold Your Hand to all the key radio stations by 9 a.m. Before the morning was over, every top 40 station in the country was hammering the record. And record stores were immediately swamped by teenagers rushing to spend their Christmas money on the single. Now, moving up the release date of I Want to Hold Your Hand had one more unexpected benefit. In 1963, the average American teenager listened to the radio for slightly more than three hours per day. Now, with kids out of school for Christmas break, the number was certainly even higher. And it was especially high because the most common Christmas presents received that year were transistor radios, which had become a lot cheaper just in time for the holiday season. 1963 was the year that all these inexpensive off-brand transistor radios flooded the American market. To put it in perspective, 5 million transistor radios were sold in the U.S. in 1962. In 1963, that number had doubled to 10 million. America is on the go from Maine to the with a portable radio as a traveling companion. America is on Cheap transistor radios were such a sensation that holiday season that Alan Sherman, who was kind of the weird Al of his generation, wrote a song about it. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a Japanese transistor radio. Now, the transistor radio was an extremely versatile piece of hardware. You could take it anywhere and share music with your friends, but you could also listen through an earplug while lying in your bed at night under the covers so your parents wouldn't know. So imagine you're an American teenager turning on your brand new transistor radio during Christmas vacation in 1963, listening for hours at a time everywhere, alone and with your friends, and hearing over and over and over again this new sound that was even more exciting than your new piece of hardware. In its first three days in the stores, I Want to Hold Your Hand sold a quarter of a million copies. And the Beatles were suddenly the most talked about group in the country. 
If you were a teenager and went to a New Year's Eve party to usher in 1964, I Want to Hold Your Hand was the floor filler of choice at the New Year's Eve party. With the young people instantly smitten, the backlash from adults was just as instant. A mere three days after the record hit the stores, the Baltimore Sun was already condemning the Beatles in an editorial, which warned, America had better take thought as to how it will deal with the invasion. Indeed, a restrained Beatles go home might be just the thing. And of course, the fact that the adults hated it was just one more reason for teenagers to love the Beatles. Capitol Records understood this and even included that Baltimore Sun editorial in its own press materials. The king of the Beatles haters turned out to be an NBC TV variety show host named Jack Parr. Jack Parr was in attendance at the Royal Variety Show in London in November, and he thought the whole hullabaloo over the Beatles was ridiculous. Like a lot of adults back then, he thought rock and roll was juvenile, and he was proud to have never booked a rock and roll act on his show. But Jack Parr was also the arch rival of Ed Sullivan. And so once Ed Sullivan announced that he'd booked the Beatles for February, Jack Parr decided to get the jump on him. He licensed some Beatles performance footage from the BBC, and then he sent out a press release announcing that his show was going to be the first to present the Beatles in the USA. Radio disc jockeys across the country breathlessly conveyed the news to their listeners that the Beatles would be making their TV debut on the Jack Parr Show on Friday, January 3rd. Now, Jack Parr's goal in presenting the Beatles was to mock the group. He admitted he was featuring them as a joke, but instead he managed to send Beatlemania into an even higher orbit. He started his piece by showing footage of fan hysteria at a UK Beatles show, and he kept making these snarky interjections, like, I understand science is working on a cure for this, which got big laughs from his studio audience. It's nice to know that England has finally risen to our cultural level. Then, as promised, he presented the first full song performance by the Beatles on American TV. But the song was not I Want to Hold Your Hand but rather it was She Loves You, the same song that had so enchanted 15-year-old Marsha Albert. And it was an in-studio performance shot for a BBC documentary. So now, just a week after I Want to Hold Your Hand had exploded in America, millions of fans are now encountering She Loves You, and with video to boot. The Beatles' Jack Parr appearance is generally considered a footnote at best to the Beatles' story. NBC definitely doesn't brag about the appearance since Jack Parr turned out to be on the wrong side of history. But the truth is, outside of radio airplay, the tape performance on the Jack Parr show on January 3rd was the single most important event leading to that complete frenzy that surrounded the band's arrival in America the next month. The Jack Parr show, which aired at 10 at night on Fridays, tended to draw an average of 17 million weekly viewers, mostly an older crowd. But with the Beatles on the show... His viewership that week swelled to 30 million. Let's put those numbers in perspective. The Jack Parr show typically was not one of the top 30 shows in the country. But the January 3rd show had a viewership almost as large as the highest rated show of the week, The Beverly Hillbillies, which had 34 million viewers. It's pretty safe to assume that those 13 million additional viewers were tuning in to see The Beatles. Watching The Beatles on The Jack Parr Show was a revelation for their new American fans. And it was also a revelation for Swan Records. Remember them? They're the Philadelphia label that held the U.S. rights to She Loves You. Well, on Saturday morning after the broadcast, requests for the record exploded. 
And by that Monday, Swan Records rushed to re-release it. If I Want to Hold Your Hand took off in the marketplace solely based on radio play, Swan's re-release of She Loves You was the first single ever to explode because of what was basically a music video. And it immediately rivaled I Want to Hold Your Hand as the most played song on American radio. To add fuel to the fire, VJ Records jumped on the bandwagon and re-released Please Please Me and From Me to You as a double A-sided single. And both of those songs instantly went into heavy radio rotation. Up next, how Capitol Records' early missteps with the Beatles actually proved to be marketing magic and catapulted them to the realm of gold records and superstar status. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Do you love Selena? Like, really love Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Now, the folks at Capitol Records were not amused by these developments. They assumed that the rival releases would get in the way of their campaign. But as it turned out, Capitol's having passed on all those early Beatles singles had the effect of making that initial wave of Beatlemania a lot more intense than it would have been if the Beatles had been marketed in the usual fashion, one single at a time. Having four Beatles singles saturating the radio all at once in January 1964 meant that it was the Beatles who teenagers fell in love with, not just a Beatles single. 
By the middle of January, Capitol Records released the debut American album by the Beatles, Meet the Beatles, which was joined a week later in the marketplace by VJ's album, Introducing the Beatles. So, within a three-and-a-half-week period, the market was deluged with three singles featuring four bona fide hit songs and two LPs. And all of these Beatles releases were outselling everything else in the marketplace. By the end of January, the Beatles had already sold two-and-a-half million records. It's pretty clear that virtually upon its release on December 26th, I Want to Hold Your Hand was the biggest-selling single in the country. But if you look back at old record charts, you won't see the song at number one nationally until the January 24th issue of Cashbox. That's because back in those days, chart data came in really slowly. That Cashbox chart actually reflected sales for the week of January 5th to 11th. The record really became the most popular song in the country a lot quicker than Cashbox reported. By the first week of January, WABC in New York was already listing the song at number one, and KRLA in Los Angeles followed suit the next week. This instant rise to the top really was unprecedented. In the UK, the Beatles had toured incessantly. They played live in 34 cities in the fall of 1963 alone. And by the time Beatlemania erupted there, they'd released a few singles, they'd hosted their own weekly radio show, they'd been on TV a few times. But in America, they reached those same heights within a week of the official release of their first Capitol single. And then on February 7th, the Beatles arrived in America. The TV and print coverage of the band's arrival was really intense. Ed Sullivan had been hyping the Beatles' appearance on the air since early January, right after the Jack Parr show aired. And Life magazine, which reached over 40 million readers a week, added to the hype by running this seven-page photo-filled essay entitled, Here Come Those Beatles, in which they reported, First, England fell, victim of a million girlish screams. Then, last week, Paris surrendered. Now, the U.S. must brace itself. The Beatles are coming. Even the Beatle haters felt they needed to acknowledge the band. A well-known DJ named William B. Williams on New York's easy listening station WNEW, for instance, would introduce the Beatles song as, I Wanna Hold My Nose. And then he'd play just a few seconds of it before tearing the needle off the record. (laughs) Brian Epstein had imagined that the Beatles' appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show would be the launching pad for their conquering of America. But by the time the Beatles arrived, America already lay at their feet. And then their arrival took things to a whole nother level. In the hours leading up to their arrival on February 7th, New York Top 40 radio stations broadcast regular updates on the progress of the Beatles' flight from London. Capitol Records actually provided specific information to the DJs in advance, including the scheduled arrival time and even the gate number, so that the fans who wanted to greet the band would know where to go. At about 1.20 in the afternoon, the Beatles arrived at Kennedy Airport on Pan Am Flight 101, and they were greeted by over 4,000 screaming teenagers, plus about 200 reporters and photographers and 100 police officers. At the famous press conference that the band conducted inside the airport, the Beatles immediately won over the press with the same wit and charisma with which they'd won over the British press four months earlier. Journalists back then had very low expectations of rock and rollers, with most assumed to be a bunch of ignorant hoods. Frank Sinatra actually once referred to rock and rollers as cretinous thugs. 
But if anything, it was the reporters who appeared to be the dullards that day, asking banal questions. What do you think of Faith Great, especially his poems. <laughs> After the press conference, the band headed to Manhattan, chased by fans shouting at them from the open windows of their moving cars on the expressway. When they got to the Plaza Hotel, they found thousands more fans waiting for them. Again, tipped off to the band's whereabouts by radio DJs who'd gotten their information straight from Capitol. Broadway was shut down for eight blocks. The top 40 stations in New York all broadcast live from the plaza. Any mention on the air of a Beatles sighting elicited a collective shriek from the crowd outside. And I got news, everybody down there on Park Avenue and listening to WABC, WA Beatles, Paul and Ringo... And Ringo will be with us in a few minutes. They're going to be here in our WA Beatles C suite, and you'll be hearing them. What's amazing about that clip is that the DJs weren't speaking to the crowd outside through any loudspeaker system. Everyone in the crowd was carrying, as always, their trusty transistor radios, and reacting in unison to the prompts of the DJs over the air. The fans remained crowded in front of the Plaza Hotel throughout the Beatles' whole visit, and any rumor of a Beatle coming or going would lead the swarm to rush en masse down the street, around the block, or wherever it was that they thought the band was about to emerge. Walter Cronkite's report that night on the CBS Evening News was awestruck. He was showing the band a lot more respect than his program had the first time around. Meanwhile, Chet Huntley on the NBC News went out of his way to be demeaning to the group. By this point, NBC had kind of positioned itself as the anti-Beatles network. Maybe it was because the Beatles were set to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show, which was on CBS. But in the spirit of that original November news piece and the Jack Parr broadcast, Chet Huntley covered the group's arrival this way. We sent three camera crews to stand among the shrieking youngsters and record the sights and sounds for posterity. Someone asked what the fuss was about, and we found we had no answer. So, good night for NBC News. Whether it was with respect or with scorn, the Beatles' visit was covered in every media outlet in the country. By that Sunday, there was no one in America who had access to a television, a radio, or a newspaper who could have not known that the Beatles were going to be on Ed Sullivan that night. The rivalry among New York radio stations to see who could be most identified with the band reached an especially fevered pitch. On WINS, DJ Murray the K managed to wiggle himself into the Beatles' orbit, getting exclusive interviews and referring to himself as the fifth Beatle. Rival station WMCA got George Harrison's sister Louise to come down and visit the station where she called her brother George in his sickbed at the plaza for an exclusive on-air conversation. And WABC, the biggest station in the market, went so far as to rebrand itself as WA Beatles On the day of the Ed Sullivan Show, all three stations raised the level of pandemonium in front of the theater. 50,000 fans had applied for tickets to the broadcast in a theater that only had 728 seats. Broadway was shut down for eight blocks with thousands of teenagers mobbing the streets, everyone carrying, as always, their transistor radios and reacting in unison to the prompts of the disc jockeys. Now, as we've hinted at before, 
it's doubtful whether the insanity surrounding this moment could have ever materialized if the chain of events started by Walter Cronkite and running through Marsha Albert and Carol James hadn't occurred. Follow me here. Without all of that, the release date of I Want to Hold Your Hand would have remained January 13th. Radio listeners wouldn't have heard the record repeatedly over Christmas break on their transistor radios. Millions of teenagers wouldn't have tuned into the Jack Parr show to watch the Beatles perform on January 3rd. Swan Records wouldn't have rush-released She Loves You. The airwaves wouldn't have been jammed with Beatles records in January. I Want to Hold Your Hand wouldn't have been number one by the time of the band's arrival. The media frenzy wouldn't have reached that fevered pitch before February 7th. And the band would have arrived in New York to do the Ed Sullivan Show without the airport scene, the press conference, or the screaming fans at the plaza. But it all unfolded as if in a fairy tale. The Beatles were slated to perform five songs on that first Ed Sullivan broadcast, but they weren't the only guests on the show. There were comedians, acrobats, an impressionist named Frank Gorshin, who later played the Riddler on the Batman TV series. There was even a juggler. And with the show about to start, every one of them was terrified of having to perform in front of a theater full of teenage girls who were already screaming nonstop before the show even began. Interestingly, among the other performers on the show was the cast of the London stage production of Oliver, which included a young man named Davy Jones, who played the role of the Artful Dodger. Davy Jones looked out at the screaming girls in the audience and decided to leave musical theater and pursue a career in rock and roll instead. A couple of years later, he became a rock star himself as part of the Monkees. Here we come, walk down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the Monkees! Now, during the 1964 TV season, the Ed Sullivan Show typically drew about 21 million weekly viewers, making it the biggest variety show on the air. On the night of February 9, 1964, the audience for the Ed Sullivan Show jumped to 73 million, by far the largest television audience for an entertainment program in history to that point. Now that's 73 million viewers out of a total U.S. population of 180 million. So that means 40% of the country was watching. Now, I'd like to add one little wrinkle with regard to that famous 73 million number, which has been touted by CBS for over 50 years. I always wondered how CBS came up with it, since the Nielsen ratings back then didn't report total number of viewers for shows. They only reported the total number of TV households who were watching, which was 23 million households. If you take that number and multiply it by 3.2, which was the average number of people in a U.S. household in 1964, you wind up with 73 million. So CBS's number assumes that in every household tuned into The Ed Sullivan Show, every single person in the household was watching. Grandparents, babies, everybody. And well, maybe they were. I've certainly never met anyone who remembers that night who claims they weren't watching. Most significantly, in 1964, about 40% of all Americans were age 18 or under, prime baby boomers. Of those, 35 million were between the ages of 8 and 18, and pretty much all of them were watching. In fact, the Washington Post went so far as to joke that on the night the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan Show, quote, there wasn't a single hubcap stolen in America. While that may or may not have been true, what is definitely not in dispute 
is the fact that virtually every young person in America sat glued to the family TV set that night, just after 8 o'clock Eastern time, when Ed Sullivan took to the stage to introduce the band. Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now, tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now, and again in the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Of course, in hindsight, the Beatles' rise to superstardom would seem to have been inevitable. And maybe it was, given how talented and charismatic they were. But there's no doubt that an amazing confluence of historical crosswinds needed to converge at just the right time in order to enable the unprecedented explosiveness of Beatlemania in early 1964. Some people say it's better to have luck than talent. In the case of the Beatles, there was an abundance of both. That wraps up this episode of Speed of Sound. Please join us next time on Speed of Sound when we'll tell the surprising story behind the unlikely group that introduced the world to hip-hop. If you want to take a deeper dive into the artists and songs you just heard, check out our curated playlist at the Speed of Sound page on the iHeart app. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Stevie G Pro. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer, editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. I'm Steve Greenberg. Until next time, keep listening for music that moves you. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. 
in recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.